The Gut Pharmacist Podcast with Riley Ramosco, traditional naturopath and holistic nutritionist. Welcome to today's episode all about SIBO, IMO, and IBS. SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and it's largely making its way into the world of gastroenterology. Luckily, while it's still not quite mainstream, it's getting a lot more attention these days, and it's actually been shown to be one of the most common contributors to IBS, so it is definitely something we need to hear about. And if you've listened to my other podcast about IBS and why it's a ridiculous diagnosis and the root causes and so on, you'd understand how important this episode is and why IBS needs to be investigated. And you shouldn't just accept the label. So we're going to be talking about one of the most common causes of IBS, which is SIBO. And before I get any further, I do want to make it clear that just because it's an overgrowth, it's not necessarily an infection and it should not be treated as such. Just like we talk about IBS having root causes, the same thing applies to SIBO. The overgrowth didn't just get there for no reason. It's not a random infection. We'll talk about how SIBO actually develops, as well as the symptoms, the three types, diet, testing, and a lot more. All about SIBO today. So let's get into it. SIBO occurs when there are more than a thousand bacteria per milliliter in the small intestine. Unlike the colon, the large intestine, which has over one trillion organisms, and this is primarily where our microbiome resides. The small intestine is not necessarily sterile, but it is compared to the large intestine. There are three types of SIBO categorized by gases. There's methane, hydrogen, and hydrogen sulfide. While you can generally have basic foundations for all three, they are all slightly different and require different approaches as such. Methane is usually characterized by slowed motility, weight gain, constipation. Methane SIBO has recently been retermed IMO, intestinal methanogen overgrowth, just as a side note, because it's technically not bacteria that are causing the methane, it's archaea, which are a different organism. But that's a different topic. So when I say SIBO, I'm also considering IMO. So just keep that in mind. So methane, again, slowed motility, weight gain, constipation, people just feel really constipated, slow, heavy, the archaea actually have more time to extract calories because of the slowed motility. So there generally is some weight gain. It's not all in their head. Hydrogen sulfide is usually characterized by diarrhea, the opposite, and sulfur sensitivity. Hydrogen, just hydrogen, isn't necessarily related to either constipation or diarrhea, it's usually just a marker of SIBO in general, as all three gases work together and they're dependent on hydrogen producers. So technically it starts with hydrogen gas, but people can have hydrogen only, or they can have hydrogen sulfide only, methane only, or they can have all three. It just depends. Everyone is different, but generally all gases work together. And generally, all types of SIBO 
can cause severe bloating and gas. Those are the main symptoms of SIBO. And they also cause systemic symptoms like food sensitivities, brain fog, fatigue, joint pain, and of course, other digestive disturbances. And differentiating between large intestine issues requires the timing and location of the bloating. So when we think of small intestine issues, they usually show up within the first one to two hours after eating. And they commonly cause bloating in the upper abdomen, whereas with the large intestine, it takes three to four hours or more, very delayed symptoms, and you have more lower bloating. This is generally a correlation that we look for, but it's not the true diagnostic. It's just something I like to ask my clients. Where do you have bloating? How long does it take? Etc. And there's many other things to consider, so keep that in mind. As far as the protocols for each, there are both pharmaceutical and natural remedies. As a traditional naturopath, I only use natural remedies, but you'll also find doctors prescribing natural remedies, but also things like antibiotics. The most common ones are rifaximin, metronidazole, and neomycin. As far as the natural side, which is me, I use antimicrobial herbs and herbal prokinetics. Oregano, berberine, neem, those are some of the main antimicrobial herbs that I use and that other naturopaths and health practitioners use. And ginger, artichoke, 5-HTP, those are the most common prokinetics that we use on the natural side. Prokinetics are really important in SIBO recovery because they promote small bowel motility, which is different than large bowel motility, commonly known as bowel movements. Prokinetics are not laxative, so I like to make that very clear. They help to activate something called the migrating motor complex in the small intestine, which is this cleansing wave, and it's characterized by that grumble in between meals, usually that hunger grumble. This is a cleaning wave. It moves and sweeps food, bacteria, fungus, everything to the large intestine. It just sweeps everything away, kind of acts as a cleaning wave. And it usually takes about three to four hours for this migrating motor complex to activate, depending on the person. Some people are faster, some are slower. But in general, meal spacing or fasting is another common recommendation you'll see for SIBO just to allow the MMC to work, clean everything out, and prevent that overgrowth. But for methane, we'll talk about the supplements used for each. For methane, you normally use one of the herbs I mentioned above berberine, neem, oregano, plus allicin, which is a component in garlic. For hydrogen, any combo of herbs would suffice. And then for sulfide, the herbs plus bismuth and things like silver hydrosol, molybdenum, and a low sulfur diet. Everyone is unique and requires unique approaches as always. And as far as diet, there is no way to reduce the overgrowth just with diet alone. I wish it were that easy, I do, but <laughs> diet is primarily used to relieve symptoms. Oftentimes people with SIBO and IMO are so uncomfortable that they need some type of diet to help reduce that fermentation symptom. 
There are also other diets for SIBO, and there are so many. There's low FODMAP, low sulfur, low carb, low fermentation, low oxalate, SIBO biphasic, and so on. It's best to use a customized diet that is unique to your needs and whatever you react to. Because what you're reacting to is not going to be the same as someone else. And it also depends on the type of gas. But in general, the most proven and least restrictive diet for SIBO is the low fermentation diet. This was developed by Dr. Pimentel. He's a leading researcher in IBS and SIBO. It's less restrictive than things like the low FODMAP, but it's very effective at reducing those fermentation symptoms that are common with SIBO. So again, diet helps, but it's not going to fix the SIBO. It's just one very small component to help reduce those symptoms. Now we've gone over a lot of information and we're going to go over some more. You're probably wondering at this point, okay, I might have SIBO, something to look into. How do I check that I have it? And I'll say it is very unfortunate that most clinics don't have the most up-to-date testing available for their patients. Luckily, practitioners like myself who stay up-to-date and have access to those types of tests actually use the proper testing and can help clients in the right direction. Most clinics just use that standard two-gas breath test with the glucose substrate. Glucose is not the best substrate, first because it takes it's taken up within the first few feet of the large or oh, sorry of the small intestine when we actually have 20 feet in the small intestine to look at so if we're using the substrate that's taken up within the first few feet out of 20 you can imagine we're missing a huge piece of that small intestine and of course now we know there are three gases so only testing two does not give you the complete picture. I guarantee most clinics are still using that two gas test, which is okay if you're more of a methane constipation type, you can get away with using the two gas test. But if you have things like diarrhea or other weird symptoms, you might wanna consider that three gas. The most ideal test is the three gas breath test with lactulose substrate. Lactulose is not absorbed, so it'll go through all 20 feet of the small intestine undigested. So the bacteria and organisms have time to ferment that. So lactulose is generally better than glucose. Three gas is generally better than two gas and so on. Many clinics do not use the three gas with the lactulose. So just keep that in mind. It is unfortunate, but lactulose does require a prescription with the three gas. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Glucose is available to everyone. And then another thing, there is a specific prep diet and also supplements and medications that you should not be on for a certain amount of time before the test. So there's not proper information provided to patients for pre-test protocols, basically, like preparation. And this is a, a large reason for many false negatives, false negative results. So you may not have prepped properly and the test does not show as it should be. And you could have SIBO when it's showing that you actually don't. 
There are also many practitioners who diagnose SIBO based on stool testing when this is actually not a true diagnostic. Stool samples are looking at the large intestine, the colon, and they don't tell us really what's going on in the small intestine. While we can't diagnose from this stool test, there are certain hints that can lead us to think that we should check for SIBO. So if you have a stool test and you have methanobrevibacter showing up, these are the archaea that commonly produce this methane gas. So we could assume, yeah, maybe you should check for IMO, the methane SIBO. There's also disulfovibrio strains, which are bacteria that produce hydrogen sulfide gas. That's another one. That's another hint to maybe check for SIBO. Also, if you have Klebsiella and E. coli shown up as overgrown in your colon. These are two very common, they call them weeds, that like to take over in SIBO and IMO. You can also have malabsorption markers, like food showing up in the stool, nutrient deficiencies on your blood tests, fiber showing up in the stool, fat. These can all indirectly indicate that we should check for SIBO and these malabsorption markers. Since the organisms get to eat the food before we do, so malabsorption is a huge side effect of SIBO and IMO. Lots of information. The last things I want to cover are the root causes of SIBO. While it's great to even get a diagnosis of SIBO, that's very rare, it's also essential that you look even further into the root causes of SIBO to prevent relapse. I see so, so many people are being put on multiple rounds of herbs or antibiotics and they still keep getting SIBO and IMO. Generally, anything that slows down or blocks motility will essentially lead to this overgrowth. And we're talking about small intestine motility. Just keep that in mind. There's many types. There's esophageal motility, large intestine motility, etc. In this case, we're directly talking about small intestine motility. Okay. So anything to slow down or block this motility will lead to SIBO and IMO. Thyroid disorders, mold, food poisoning, adhesions from surgery or endometriosis, medications like narcotics or statins, gastric bypass, small intestine inflammation from Crohn's, diverticulosis, or celiac. There are also other contributors like low stomach acid, pancreatic enzymes or bile, low pancreatic enzymes or bile, which lead to improperly broken down food that just sits in the small intestine, not as digested, giving these organisms more time to ferment. Sorry, I am just tongue-tied today. (laughs) Anyway, and then there's also autoimmune disease, diabetes, MCAS, which is mast cell activation syndrome, and other anatomical issues. There are many things that contribute. It's a bit overwhelming, but obviously we all have the general root causes of toxicity, improper diet, maybe dehydration, and so on. So we have to rule those things out. And of course, nervous system dysregulation, pretty much all of our nervous systems are dysregulated, which will affect everything in the body and certainly the gut. So we got to address these basic foundations and then look into all those root causes that I've mentioned. 
obviously all these root causes need to be addressed or the overgrowth could just keep coming back. And that is a very common thing that I see happening. If it's just treated as an infection and not treated as a functional disorder with root causes. So there you have it. Lots of information on SIBO, IMO, the most common cause of IBS, and the most common cause that you could be missing out on. So this is definitely important information. Share this with anyone who has IBS and has some of these symptoms because you could be helping them in the long run. Thank you guys so much for listening today. I hope that helped. Keep coming back. I love it, and I hope to be providing more and more functional and helpful information for all of you. Thank you so much. Hey there. Thanks for listening. You can find me on Instagram at gutexpertriley, on Facebook at The Gut Pharmacist, same spelling as this podcast, on YouTube at The Gut Pharmacist, and my website is holisticriley.podia.com where you can find information on working with me, my background, and more helpful information to feel empowered in your journey.